here to talk to me about the Australian federal and state government's response to COVID-19 in the past 18 months is Adam Crichton. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. David Lionhelm. Morning. Good to be with you. And Gigi Foster. Thanks very much, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity. David, I want to start with you on this question, and that is that how unprecedented in the history of this country are these lockdowns? Um, I, I haven't encountered anything like it in the past, although during the Spanish flu epidemic following the First World War, um, there were lockdowns, but this scale, this, this magnitude, um, this intrusiveness, um, just, you know, absolute authoritarian aspects to it. Um, I, I don't think there's much precedent at all. We have had periods in Australia when we've been extremely authoritarian. We locked up uh, anything, anyone who had ever eaten Japanese food, for example, during the uh, Second World War. Uh, uh, Germans uh, and people associated with Germany, even Jewish Germans uh, were interned as well. So uh, we have gone through periods uh, of uh, not being ex very liberal at all, but uh, this, this is nationwide pretty much, um, even though it's being done by the states. And it's, it's also bizarre. I mean, it's not a war situation. We're dealing with a virus. So, uh, it really is quite unprecedented. Unprecedented and without an end goal. Yes, I, I don't think there'll be an end goal that originates within Australia. I don't think our political class has enough brains or courage, and I'm not sure which is the most lacking, um, to reach an end point. I think the end point will be um, sort of imposed on us by the rest of the world. The rest of the world will come out of uh, this crazy stage of, you know, the, the, the virus can be avoided forever and the rest of the world be getting, will be getting on and living with the virus, to use the, the common term. And um, Australia will be sitting there with its thumb up its bum going, oh, well, we're missing out. If there's one thing Australians don't like, it's being laughed at or, or by the rest of the world or not thinking this is the best place in the world. And that's now becoming the situation. We are becoming an object of ridicule started um, in both America and uh, the UK. They're starting to laugh at us. And uh, they're also starting to move around, um, go and visit each other. It's early days yet, but Australians love to do that as well. And uh, I think it's, it's uh, looking over the fence um, factors which will uh, change political thinking here in Australia. I don't think we'll be able to come up with the, um, uh, the answers uh, endogenously, if I can put it that way. Adam Crichton, political commentator for The Australian, based now in Washington, D.C. as a correspondent. What do you make of that, Adam? And on top of that, what do you make of the near unanimous support for these lockdown measures in the media? Yeah, look, I, uh, I certainly agree with, with everything that David said there. Um, they are unprecedented. Uh, the lockdowns that happened in the Spanish flu in 1919, the, the flu came to Australia relatively late, actually. The uh, peak was, was in 1918 and the rest of the world, but they were of far, far shorter duration and, and far less uh, severe 
And of course, that that virus was vastly, vastly more lethal and dangerous than than what we're dealing with now. So that's a that's a salient point. Um, the most fascinating point for me is that you have uh, these you know these very well written, very comprehensive pandemic plans, which were put together by state and federal authorities. And in Australia's case, most recently updated in August 2019, there's something like a 200-page document which basically explains what you do when you have a influenza pandemic, which, which of course is very similar in many ways, at least in terms of how it's spread to a coronavirus. And, and it is just so breathtakingly obvious that, that we haven't done anything in that plan. We've, we've just behaved in a really extreme and, and psychotic way, I would say, as a society in Australia, and not just in Australia, of course. I mean, these, these sorts of lockdowns have happened all around the world, Israel, of course, Europe, uh, certain states in the US. So it's not just Australia, but certainly you could say Australia seems to be even more risk averse to the virus, you'd say, than, uh, than any other jurisdiction in the world. Uh, and that's, that's a fascinating phenomenon. I mean, it's partly because of our wealth. We're a very rich country. And so we can afford, I guess, if you like, to spend extraordinary sums and be extraordinarily destructive and still be rich. So that is part of it. Uh, maybe part of it is also the fact that we're an island and we think that we can keep the virus out unlike any other jurisdiction. That's, that seems to be the case in New Zealand as well. But, uh, but I, do, you know, I do despair because this has set a precedent now that you know, whenever the next virus emerges in four or five years, uh, households and businesses will know that in Australia, that will mean extremely severe lockdowns potentially for years. And when you know that, that's obviously going to weigh on your decision to locate in Australia or live in Australia or set up a business, especially in the retail sector. I mean, why would you even bother, right? I mean, it, and if you were going to do it, you'd have to set much higher prices to justify the fact that you might be shut down for a very long time. So I think it has huge consequences that we don't even realise yet and that won't be manifest. That goes for most of the costs of lockdown. I mean, the costs are going to manifest themselves over the coming years. Before I go to Gigi on the economic devastation here, uh, why aren't the media the slightest bit curious as to questioning again the science, as we've spoken about before on another issue that relies quite heavily on using the word science? Look, it's a good question. I mean, I don't think it's all journalists who aren't who aren't curious. I think there are a number of journalists in Australia who've been outspoken about this, not just me, uh, at various publications. And but I have been surprised that there haven't been more. And I guess if I was trying to explain it, it would be that uh, most journalists are extremely busy and they're under enormous time pressure and they don't have the time to research these questions uh, as, as well as they would like to. And there's also a faith that whatever the government says is right. Uh, and I think that that probably goes to Australian culture, if you like. We always, you know, we have a history of, of uh, supporting government. We've never had a government that's been tyrannical in our history, unlike other countries, unlike the US, for instance, and, and you know, Britain and so forth. So we have a different attitude to government in Australia, and I think that's shared by journalists too. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, you can, you can Google so many, I mean, so easily find uh, like academic papers that refute what, you know, what the Australian state and federal governments have been saying, that I do find it extraordinary that there's not more scepticism about what's being done. And also just, just to add too, I mean, the, there's, there's a real failure, I think, to understand the political economy that like, motivates uh, democratic politics. You know, based governments want to be re-elected. That is their top priority. And if they're dealing with a scared populace, then the incentive is to maintain that fear. 
in order to be re-elected. And it's worked incredibly well in Australia. I mean, the state premiers that have, that have come up for election have done extraordinarily well. And, you know, they have capitalised on this. Now, you might, you know, kind of Joe Blow might think that, you know, the Queensland Premier really cares about his life. But, I mean, if that's true, I've, you know, I've got the Harbour Bridge to sell you. I mean, uh, you know, she or he or whoever it is doesn't uh, care any more about their life than yeah. the next person does. Um, but but somehow there's this, there's this belief out there that, you know, the bureaucratic class, the political class are very, very caring for people when most of history would suggest that that's not true. Nicholas, um, just on your question about why has the media been um, so placid about this or so obliging to the political class, uh, in addition to, to Adam's point that they're busy, they often don't have time to research things, they also see the the world, the Australian politics through the sort of binary Labor versus Liberal and Labor plus the hangers-on Greens type people and Liberal. Um, so left or right, it's a, it's a left-right issue um, and not very left and not very right. And in this whole issue, there's been no difference practically between the two parties or the two sides. Um, the Labor Party says whatever the Liberal Party wants to do, you know, we're not going to disagree in the state um, government mm. that are Labor. The Liberal opposition has said, well, whatever Labor wants to do. Um, in fact, to, to their enormous cost in Western Australia, they were basically wiped out by just being doormats to the uh, McGowan government. Let's the talk media, about The media sees the... Sees the uh, the subject matter, or not all media, but most of the media see subject matter in those terms. Do, does one side of politics have one view and the other side of politics a different view? That's reportable. But if they both agree, there's nothing to report. Gigi, what do you make of this? Well, I agree very strongly with most of what's been said um, by David and Adam very eloquently. Um, I do feel that what uh, David is picking up there is essentially uh, what, I, what I've called in the, uh, the book that I've read about this whole period, uh, a monoculture. It's a monoculture in politics. And we have the same problem in science as well. Um, perhaps in, in journalism to an extent, there's a particular way that you are supposed to say things. There are particular no-go zones. There are particular frames you're supposed to use. Um, and that's very true in the science of economics now. And I think it's increasingly true in politics as well. And, um, and that really, makes us uh, kind of paralyzed in the face of a crisis. We only have one way to think, and that's very dangerous. And you see the most progress in opening up after this crazy period in places like the United States where there are little pockets of difference, right? We have 50 different states, different Petri dishes in the United States, and each one potentially can experiment with doing things a little bit differently, mm -hmm. having a different perspective, a different idea. And so you see Texas and Florida, you know, I went to their uh, health department websites yesterday, and they have a very sane and proportionate sort of exposition of what COVID is about and what you should do if you're afraid you might you might have it. Um, but there is, there's no blanket restriction on movement and, you know, the, the kind of restriction restrictions of liberties that we've had in Australia just aren't there anymore. And yes, they have some pressure on their hospitals as we do in bad flu seasons, um, but they're focusing protection and, and treatment on people who actually are likely to get these, the, this you know, disease, the symptoms and the, and the illness and the, the death from this disease, which are of course the elderly, the immunocompromised, et cetera, as it always has been since March. So, so you see that in the US and I couldn't agree more with what David said 
in that people around the world will look at those pockets of enlightenment in some sense and think, gosh, why, why don't we have that here? And that is what will ultimately kick us out of the, the craziness here in Australia. And you wanted to, to talk about the cost of lockdowns. I've, I've spoken about this you know, voluminously over the last 18 months, including to the Victorian parliament. Um, and essentially the first thing I would say is we have not seen a cost benefit accounting for these policies. And that is something that is just a baseline requirement for any policy and certainly for something so draconian of, of what has been implemented in many states here in Australia. Uh, you know, you would expect that the, the burden of proof would be on the shoulders of government to demonstrate to the people that this is a good idea from the perspective of their health and well-being, because that is what we elect them to provide and secure and nurture and safeguard. But they have fully betrayed that during this period, and they have not provided that that evidence. And instead, the burden of proof has been implicitly shifted onto the shoulders of people like myself and Adam, who have had to then prove that these draconian, mm. unprecedented restrictions are a bad idea. Mm. So just, that by itself should should show you that this is not about science. This is not about health protection. This is not a normal time. Something has changed here. And so that's that's then part of, again, what I, what I study in my book and what I try to elucidate in the book is that this is a different dynamic than what we have, most of us in our living memory, have seen. Yeah, just, just uh, two follow-up points to that. You know, I think the reason why there hasn't been an official cost-benefit analysis, of course, is because if there were one, it would, it would require specifying, you know, various parameters and various uh, kind of sums of what a society is willing to pay to save lives or save life years, and those figures would be just so extraordinarily ridiculous. That, that they'd be shot down and, you know, we would say, well, why are we spending $300 million to save one year of life when just a few years ago, we wouldn't have spent $1 million. Uh, You know, those, you know, and that's a very valid question when you're in a society with limited resources. And then just briefly, the second point, which I found particularly frustrating about the whole debate uh, with other economists in the public sphere, is, is that everything is couched in terms of GDP. So I'm constantly told in Australia, oh, look, GDP is fine, or the jobless rate is fine. Well, you know, GDP is fine and the jobless rate is fine in communist China too. That, that, that doesn't say very much about what sort of society you want to live in. You know, my point is that GDP is a, is a very poor reflection of, of the standard of a society. And so if, you, if you're having an argument about GDP, it leads to all sorts of horrible conclusions. I mean, there, are, you know, there should be some rights which, which governments just can't trample on, you know, willy-nilly. I mean, you know, maybe in a very serious crisis like an actual war, but I mean, as David said earlier, this is this is this is farcical. I mean, it's a you know, it's a it's a relatively mild pandemic historically speaking. That's that's not in question. In fact, the, the criteria in that pandemic plan I just mentioned earlier, you know, almost describes the uh, the coronavirus pandemic in its mild pandemic definition. Uh, you know, there's 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 kind of no way around that. So yeah, the, you know, the lack of cost benefit is extremely frustrating, but also just, just the general standard of debate about the costs and benefits that, you know, being able to go outside, there is no dollar value on that, sure. You know, you can't, it's very hard to price that, but in many ways it's invaluable. So, so I would agree with Adam completely that the, the GDP focus is, is, has become detrimental. I mean, don't get me wrong, GDP is a measure that we, we have across the world. We've had it throughout many years. We can compare it. It, it does, you know, generally speaking, GDP per capita yields many benefits that we value. But at the same time, it does not capture all of what we value about our lives. And it's really human well-being and thriving that, that the governments are looked to to provide for people. And, and there is actually a way to count 
the various kinds of suffering that we have inflicted upon ourselves during this period, such as the mental health costs and the stress and the, the additional frustration and the, the fear, the anxiety, uh, the inability to go outside even that causes you to suffer. That suffering, first of all, it should count and, and nobody is counting it, right? So it should count. And secondly, the way that you can count it is by um, expanding your notion of what matters to include basically satisfaction with life, your happiness, your welfare at the moment with your life. And there is actually a currency for this, which was just coincidentally in invented by my great friend and, and colleague, Paul Freiders at the London School of Economics and his team back in late 2019. And it's called the well-being, the well-being year. And essentially is built from a very standard question that appears on social science surveys all over the world, which is overall, how satisfied are you with your life? That question is answered on a zero to 10 scale of satisfaction and most healthy, happy people in a country like Australia will sort of on average answer about a seven or an eight. The level that is uh, equivalent to being dead, so you're sort of indifferent between being alive and being dead is about a two on that scale. And so if you take the difference there, that's six points of satisfaction. That's that's kind of the amount that we think of as being equivalent to one quality adjusted life year, which as Adam said before, I think he mentioned qualities, this is a currency that we use in health economics all the time in normal times to determine whether or not we want to buy a, a, a drug or a health intervention. We make a determination based on what the drug manufacturer, let's say, tells us that we can get in terms of qualities. We say, well, if that will cost us uh, $50,000 or $100,000 or less, then we'll buy that drug. And usually the range is somewhere in there for most developed countries around the world. For the UK, for the National Health Service, it's about £30,000. Um, in most times in Australia, it's somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 per quality, per quality adjusted life year. Now, if you think that you can capture some of this stress that we have inflicted upon people during lockdowns using the well-be, and then you can translate the well-be, which is a basically a well, one well-be is one unit, one uh, point on that satisfaction scale to qualities. And then you can translate qualities into dollars because we know what governments are usually prepared to spend for a quality in normal times. Then you can make a historical comparison between what we normally spend to save quality adjusted life years and what we have by default, by implication, been spending during this period to allegedly save quality adjusted life years. And I say allegedly because actually now that we have had 18 year, 18 months to, to generate data and look around the world at what happens when you implement shelter in place orders or lockdowns, we can say that in fact, they do not save qualities to COVID. These lockdowns do not actually save lives. We have been sold the narrative that they do. But this is one of the situations in which, in fact, it's, it's human hubris to expect that really our policies are making much of a difference in terms of moving the dial one way or the other on COVID deaths. Really what seems to matter are other things that are quite beyond a government's control to manipulate in the short run, such as your population density, the seasonality, how much sunlight you have, what quality of healthcare do you have, what's the distribution of your age and your population, uh, where do the old people live, right? Many, many things like this. Are you an island nation? And so I think what happened in Australia, and I will, I'm happy to go through the, the individual cost categories of lockdowns if you like, Nick, but I think one of the things that happened in Australia very strongly is that the politicians early on took the option to block us off from the rest of the world. And that was the beginning of boxing themselves into a corner in terms of the narrative. And they don't see, they haven't seen a way out because you know, we don't have the virus much in this country and they know that as soon as they open the borders, it will come in and then 
all of this artifice that they've built over the last 18 months about how the suffering that we've been inflicting on ourselves is gonna produce something is all gonna come crashing down like a house of cards. So that is the basic problem the politicians are facing, I think. Okay, so taking into account but everything that we've just discussed, a legitimate question I think that isn't being asked that I want to start with David and then go to Adam and finish up on Gigi is that now that we've seen many, many billions of taxpayer money being spent through this, a tremendous amount of suffering, junk science, why is it not reasonable to audit state and federal governments? It's been 18 months, a lot of money's been spent, a lot of suffering's happened. David, how would that process go ahead if it was to? Well, I mean, you said why is not reasonable. Reason's sort of been a bit absent from Australia now for the last uh, um, 18, 20 months or so. So um, I don't know why you would expect that it might uh, return anytime soon. What would it take to audit the state governments? Um, um, most likely a change in their political leadership. Um, they're not going to allow a situation where um, an inquiry could find that they were at fault. We saw the Royal Commission into the hotel uh, quarantine problem in Victoria, where nobody could remember who made the decision. And ultimately, it was just a massive buck passing exercise. Um, that's that's the sort of result you get when the incumbents are in power. So the next election in Victoria is late next year. If there is a change of government at that time, it's quite likely there will be a process of auditing what went on. There are elements within the opposition in Victoria that, that would like to see that happen. Now, presumably, they would have to get the numbers, but I think that's fairly likely. If the... Um, at the federal government in uh, election, federal election is has to be by May next year. I suspect it probably won't be till April or May. Um, if Labor wins that, there's a good chance there will be some kind of inquiry into the Morrison government's handling. They've been very critical um, of the vaccine acquisition, for example. Although you know, I don't, I, you know, they've got to be a bit careful there. None of them had. Um, had much uh, foresight at the time the vaccines were being ordered. But, um, and then the rollout, which is a combination of federal and state responsibility, the aged care um, house, uh, homes, which are federal, and, and quarantine, of course, which is also federal. So Labor is likely to um, be interested in, in an inquiry which would find fault with the, the Morrison government. If there's no change in the government, if, if the Morrison government is re-elected, I can't see much appetite for an inquiry. But it's possible, you know, we, we're not anywhere near the end of this yet. The likelihood is we would that to maintain immunity, unless they come up with some new technology of vaccines and find a different protein antigen combination, the likelihood is we're going to need boosters every six months, maybe every nine months, 12 months at the latest, um, indefinitely, and until they come up with new technology on it for, for a vaccine. Um, that's going to change. Every, everyone's saying, you know, get vaccinated, have to have a vaccine passport. Um, you can't travel if you haven't got a vaccine passport. You can't, 
in France, you can't go into a restaurant or a pub or something and have a drink. And they're talking about doing similar sorts of things here. How is that going to play out with people who've been vaccinated more than six months later who need a booster to maintain their immunity? It's going to all fall down. Now, so at some stage down the track, there may be a light come on. You can't guarantee it, but it, there may be a light come on and says, hang on a minute, I'm not sure we've got this right. Um, it'll take a different Prime Minister from Morrison, but it may be that uh, whoever replaces him might say, right, uh, let's have a fallen royal commission, for example. And there have been a few voices talking about that recently, but I, I don't see any, any sign of it. But down the track, you know, when if there's mud to be flung, the people who are going to cop it in the face aren't around anymore, um, then that's more likely to occur in political terms. Now, there's no reason for any of that. So to go back to your original question, um, don't expect reason to prevail. Adam, journalists have typically been very good in this space, I think, in terms of putting pressure on government and holding them accountable. Um, of course, there are some, and you are one of them, who are doing this, but there is a large number that is not. What might it take, do you think, for uh, more voices in the media to start asking some of these questions, some very legitimate questions? Well, look, I've been out of the country for, you know, four months now, but but that said, my sense is that more journalists are starting to ask themselves what is going on in Australia. I mean, I've just, just from the tweets I see, you know, the tone of support has has changed because I think it is, it is harder for rational people to sustain their support for something that is like clearly driven by collective hysteria and that is not rational. Because most journalists are quite bright, especially the you know commentators and so forth. You know they're they're well read, they're smart people, and they can see what's happening around them. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, there's this there's a famous quote from I think Charles Mackay in the 19th century that everyone goes crazy together, and then they go saying one by one slowly. And I think that's that's kind of what what we're going to see. And I think the public will just will get sick of it, I think, after a while. I mean, if you have to have boosters every six months for the rest of your life, I, I find that, that that's not going to fly. Yeah. I mean, in, indeed, even the thought that you'd get half the population, I mean, even a quarter, I mean, it's just, I mean, you just look at the share of people who got flu shots. Uh, it, was a, it was a small percentage of people under 65 ever bothered to get flu shots. Uh, the idea we're going to get 90% of people getting boosters for the rest of their life is just insane. Um, so I think I think that just won't be lived up to. I think I think more people will just get fed up with the restrictions. You know, you're seeing that in the US now. You know, there's a there's a third wave, so to speak. Um, but except for Washington DC, where unfortunately I, I kind of live in this regard, uh, very few states have reintroduced mask mandates, and almost no governor has even mentioned lockdowns. Even in California, in fact, I think Gavin Newsom has said that he would not lock the state down again. Uh, because it's just, you know, politically unsustainable to do that. So, and also the good thing about the US with all the jurisdictions is that there's so much evidence now of states, other jurisdictions, where there are almost no restrictions and people are just getting on with their life. And of course, yes, there is some stress on hospitals here and there, but it is not the Armageddon that is, that is portrayed in some segments of the media. In fact, I've had some friends recently at Florida. Uh, they've been down there, and I asked them, you know, somewhat jokingly, I said, "I hear it's, you know, I hear it's chaos down there. You know, how how was it?" And they're like, "It's completely normal in Miami. People are going out to dinner. They're going to clubs and bars. They're going to the beach. You know, you would not know there's a so-called great a great pandemic unless you turn on CNN." 
so, so I think, you know, and that's another interesting fact about this. I mean, I've just finished a, reading a history of, of the Spanish flu, a very long one, very good one by, uh, by John Barry. And, and I was just struck by the contrast then where the US government stopped the media from talking about the flu and all the press was encouraged to, to always look on the bright side and always play it down. And yet it was so bad, there was so much death and in Philadelphia, so much death that they actually had to come and pick up the bodies from people's houses during the day because there was so there was just such an overflow of death, uh, and the whole population was absolutely terrified. It didn't matter what the media said; everyone was absolutely terrified. In fact, in one U.S. state, uh, people started shooting their own pets because there was a rumor spread that the flu, you know, spread through dogs. And so you can imagine all these all these people shooting you know, the pets that they love. You know, that was that was the level. Of, of just sheer fear of this thing, which would kill, you know, people who are in their 20s in 12 hours, you know, and, and, and so it, it was like nothing like we're dealing with now. Um, whereas now you've got the media, you know, basically exaggerating as much as it possibly can, you know, really turning up the terror. And yet most people don't have any direct experience of COVID whatsoever. Um, you know, if you look at Sweden, for instance, which is always attacked, and I think it's actually come out of the whole situation very well, really. Um, if you look at the well-being of society, okay, 14,500 people have died, about a third of those were over 90. You know, there'd be hardly any Swedes that would know of anyone who even, you know, who suffered any major symptom from COVID. And yet that country is portrayed in the Australian press as though it was ravaged, uh, to use a word that uh, other journalists have used. I mean, that's just a ridiculous use of the word ravaged. I mean, it's almost as if language has no meaning anymore when you can describe a country as ravaged when 99.86% of people have survived and of those who've died, a big bulk of them are over 90. I mean, it's extraordinary that I even said that sentence. That's just, but, that's, but that's the level of insanity that we're currently in. We are. And every time you walk in front of the TV, look, I like to leave the TV on channel 9, 10 or 7, um, just so I can get a, a gauge of, of how wacky they're prepared to take this. Uh, reporting deaths, like you said, of a 90-year-old with no information. Um, it's very irresponsible media. Why, why do you think they're doing this, Adam? Well, the incentives for media, obviously, as they always have been throughout history, is, 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 is to maximise your readership. And I think, I think in this particular era, era of, of a media where, where, you're, you know, where eyeball traffic matters so much, there is a, there is a tension in all media outlets to, you know, to make things as, as scary as possible because that's what's read. And so that's just the economics of the whole situation. But, and so you've got to realise that's, that is always going to be the case. What, you know, what has upset me is that so many, so many public intellectuals who are smart people, the, they don't see through that. You know, they don't set that aside as a given. And they seem to actually just believe all the hysteria without actually looking at the context and, you know, which is often left out of news articles because there's not a lot of space. And, and they're often written very quickly. Uh, but but you'd think that senior economists and you know senior professors who have time on their hands and who can research some things themselves would be able to look through that and and try to calm society down because the incentives of the media and the incentives of the political class are both for overreaction. You know that's that's the way they're set up, right? So that's just a given. Mm -hmm. And so the just you know the most disappointing thing for this whole episode is is that you have people who should know better and who should be trying to calm people down. Uh, are not, or, in, or indeed worse, actually making it worse. I come from the school of thought that intelligence is never a predictive 
quality of wisdom. I don't think the two necessarily go together. I think they go together as much as mask mandates and a reduction in COVID deaths go together. Gigi, is it time for an audit? Uh, well, first, I have to comment on the, uh, the Adam's uh, remark about how so many senior economists haven't haven't uh, commented in a positive way during this period. And I totally agree. I think, um, you know, it's what David said before, you need both courage and brains. And the courage has been very much lacking to call out bad policy because a, a lot of senior scientists actually are not in it for the science as much as, as used to be the case, they're in it for the careers because we pay very well in science now, including social science. And it's a very high status, high prestige kind of job. And so that will attract people who are mainly in it for their careers rather than actually for the pursuit of truth. So that's thing one. Thing two is that without the really strong ability to think independently and hold yourself apart from the crowd and analyze what's going on in the crowd, which is part of, in my view, being a good social scientist, you're simply just as likely to be swept up in the hysteria as Joe blogs on the street. Intelligence doesn't have anything to do with it. And in fact, intelligence can be very damaging because the more intelligent you are, the better your crazy wacko rationalization sort of system can generate reasons why what's happening is a good thing. And that's what we have actually seen a lot of during this period is my colleagues, I hate to say it, it's horrible, but my colleagues around the country have served as apologists for what is indeed, I think, criminal action on the part of politicians in this country. And, and in terms of audits, I mean, the thing that that comes to my mind first is the Nuremberg Code. So after the Second World War, um, criminals were brought, you know, before the sort of world of justice and, and the world standards of justice and had to face the fact that they had not been pursuing policies that they had a, a reasonable impression were going to promote the health of the populations. And so the sixth Nuremberg, Nuremberg Code requires this of politicians, that when they make a policy, they must have a reasonable idea that is actually going to help the people. Um, and that's just been completely not true during this period. And so I, I do, you know, in my fantasy world of what happens after this, yeah, sure, our politicians are all called before, um, you know, courts of law, whether in Australia or internationally, and they are punished. They're given jail time, they are uh, made examples of so that the next generation of politicians thinks twice before betraying their people, the way that our current generation have betrayed us. Um, will that happen? Probably not, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, I think the people who have felt the brunt of the, the lockdown costs, which are, of course, the people at the bottom of the distributions of income and wealth and advantage in all sorts of dimensions, are just going to have to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and keep going, which is what's happened in history. Whenever the, the powerful have uh, have visited destruction upon their populations, and uh, and it makes me very very sad. Um, so this has been a time of great frustration, great sadness, great despair, uh, but still I feel hopeful because I think we have learned again the value of diversity of thought, of preserving diversity within our institutions, and we have learned that it's very dangerous not to do that. And it's very dangerous to um, allow the kind of contagion of fear that we've seen that's been assisted and catalyzed by the media, but not caused initially necessarily by the media. And so it, those kinds of observations give us, give us clues about how to build back better, <laughs> how to really build back better, how to build uh, proper diversity and proper um, 
weighing up of options into our institutions going forward, how to potentially adjust our media institutions and our communications structures so that there is just not this kind of, uh, you know, snowballing hysteria that we've seen that can then capture politicians and, and companies. And we've also seen the really bad damaging effects of high concentration in certain industries, including big pharmaceutical companies and, um, you know, other like big PPE manufacturers, uh, that kind of cronyism between big business and uh, and politics, I think is another area where we can really learn some lessons for the future. So I, I'm still hopeful, but boy, this has been a been a very difficult period. Okay, final thoughts, a uh, couple of minutes each. I'll start with David and then Adam and we'll finish off with Gigi. Well, look, um, I, it's, it's hard to summarize it in a couple of minutes because it's, it's a, such an exercise in despair most of the time. I find this whole lockdown um, personally, um, depressing as hell and and it's additionally depressing because it's so unnecessary um, I'm a, I used to be a veterinarian in my former life and many of the issues surrounding spread of respiratory viruses we're very familiar with in the veterinary world with especially with uh, poultry and pigs and to some extent feedlots so lots of the mistakes that have been made the lessons have been learned um, I and probably most veterinarians would have been very well aware of them right from the very beginning. Then my political experience um, has made me realise that politicians are not the smartest people in the world. They're good at politics, but that's not necessarily smart in many other ways. And then I've encountered the, um, the public health uh, mafia, I call them, um, the people who are um, qualified as doctors, um, but who don't work as doctors, they worry about saving us from ourselves. Um, in, you know, they're the ultimate nanny status. And I look at the influence of all of that, um, you know, the politicians who are not smart enough to stand up to the public health mafia, the public health mafia who thinks they are smarter than everybody else um, and, uh, and capable of telling us all how to live, and, uh, and a media that's... Um, um, pliant for reasons I explained earlier that there is no real political opposition coming from either side and uh, we end up with a god-awful mess and we are in a god-awful mess and I, I as I said earlier I don't think we are going to get ourselves out of that mess it'll be the rest of the world and reality reality will dawn that we can't keep doing what we're doing and uh, Australia and New Zealand are living in a delusional um, state at the moment Although Australia is gradually realising that maybe that delusion um, is a, does exist and that there's a different reality out there, Adam. Yeah, just to just to share the despair of of, um, of David and Gigi. I've you know I've also had a very difficult year in that sense. It's it's uh, you know it's been quite sad, and depressing at times. Um, but but I do hope that we're nearing the end of this episode. You know. Um, you know, it's been coming up to 18 months soon of this of this kind of collective hysteria. I mean, it does have to end at some point. You know, my worry is 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 you know to start with a worry is is that just like September 11 and the vast expansion of the security state we saw and the surveillance state throughout Western Western countries, which in many ways still exists. You know, every time you go for a flight, there are still what I think somewhat crazy things you have to do. You know, you can't have toothpaste, you can't have nail scissors, and all this sorts of stuff. This this whole apparatus. Is, is now permanent, regardless of whatever the real objective risk of terrorism is, it's, it's there. And so I do worry that there's going to be a COVID apparatus that never goes away. 
And I do wonder whether, you know, 2019 will ever exist again. Uh, you know, I don't think that international travel will, you know, will ever be the same. And I think there'll be, there'll be a lot more, you know, busy bodies and, and form filling that, that will never go away. And that's, and that's a very sad thing. And, you know, I think we have to recognise that. But on a more positive note, I think uh, that there will be inquiries in the future and I don't think they'll be politically motivated. I mean, the inquiries I'm talking about are the ones that will come in five and 10 years time, probably 10 when the current political class is no longer in power. And the future politicians will have no, no incentive to defend the previous political class. They won't really care. And so the inquiries that will be produced will be a lot more, much more accurate and much more fair. And I think academics will be a lot more honest because again, they, they, they won't be involved in the original decisions. And I think you'll get the same conclusions that you had after the Spanish flu when there were lots of inquiries and they all concluded that none of the measures, certainly not masks, made a scrap of difference. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that will happen. And also we're fortunate as a society because there's, there's been a number of jurisdictions around the world who have not uh, been crazy. And of course they provide a wonderful counterfactual, which is so valuable to society in the future. Gigi. Yes, um, I mean, I agree with very much of what David and Adam said. Um, I, I guess I worry for my field. I worry for science because unlike Adam, I'm not quite as optimistic that the scientists of the future will see things rationally. If we look back in history, for example, take the United States prohibition period, basically all of science became an apologist for prohibition during that period, writing all sorts of articles about how alcohol was the worst scourge and, you know, to ever uh, come across mankind. And, and I, I feel like that's basically, unfortunately, what we've been proven to do. We act like apologists. When push comes to shove, you know, at the, at the pointy end of things, very few scientists, quote unquote, actually do science these days at least, and, and certainly back in the 20s as well, it seems. So I think it's kind of a permanent fixture. Um, and, and that's very um, sobering for me because I, I guess until this period, I, I thought naively that I, you know, I, had, I was surrounded by a tribe of people who really cared about the truth and helping the world and doing what we could to give recommendations that were in line with welfare maximization. Um, but that's just not happened during this period. And worse, people who have spoken out like me or Adam have been, you know, bullied and people have tried to cancel us. And so it's just been very, very scary. So, so I worry a bit that, you know, science and indeed this is in not just economics, but, but hard sciences too, health science is going to struggle with itself going forward. How are we going to reintegrate people like me, people like, um, you know, Martin Kuldorf in the U.S., or anybody who has stood apart from their scientific apologist group and tried to argue for what's right, how is that, that division gonna be reconciled going forward? I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I've thought about maybe I should take a leave of absence from the university and think about what I wanna do. I mean, you know, how, do, how, do you, how do you go forward with, with colleagues you previously thought were you know, sensible and, and courageous and uh, well-meaning? It's very difficult. So I worry about that. Um, I do think, as I said before, that there are things we can we can target going forward for institutional change, and I think the the subsidization of alternative schools of thought and the um, renewed focus on the importance of competition and supporting small businesses um, and and why that's important. It's not just important for those businesses; it's important for the whole society to have more competition because when we don't, when we have more concentration, then we have more of a of an environment in which these kinds of horse trades between politicians and big companies can damage 
the population's welfare. So that's a very, very important lesson. And there's several other lessons that I, I see us going forward and moving, moving forward with. Also, just on a personal note, again, writing this book, The Great COVID Panic, has been very cathartic for me because I've been able to ex express what I think has happened during this period. And, and, I, and I hope that that will help people uh, around the world who have been struck by something's rotten in Denmark here, but I don't really understand why to help them make sense of what's happened. And even my son has written a musical about the COVID period to try to channel his frustration and anger. So, you know, there has been creativity coming out and I expect there'll be a lot of creativity over the next few years that will help to give us perspective on what's happened and, and help us to reconcile within our families, within our professions and, and move forward. David Lionhelm, Adam Crichton and Gigi Foster, thanks very much for coming on the program. Thanks, Nick. Good to be with you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Great conversation. You can find this episode on the Nick Holt podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and now Audible. 